Welcome back to the Health and Wealth Podcast. In my opinion, the best podcast for health, wellness, self-improvement. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Max Golhane. If you're looking at the screen, this is his amazing podcast, the Regenerative Health Podcast. Max woke up at 5.30 in the morning to interview with me. He lives in Australia. I live in the United States. There's a 16-hour difference, so Max is 16 hours ahead of me and woke up at 5.30. I cannot thank him enough for taking the time to do this. Max is young, he's hungry for knowledge, and he really has a passion for helping people. He describes in this podcast that he wants to promote holistic health from the preventative side, from the lifestyle side. He's a practicing family medicine doctor. And his main tenets that we talked about are diet, and Max follows the carnivore diet. He explained he's about 90% carnivore, and he also talks about something very interesting called light diet, or what he calls light diet, where our light exposure to sunlight and artificial light is just as important, if not more important, than our diet. You see in the podcast that Max is covered in a red light and he's wearing blue blocking sunglasses because he's trying to avoid artificial light at such an early hour. I hope to bring Max back on. We have so much we can learn from him. Max, if you're listening, I cannot thank you enough for coming on and I wish you the very best. And to my audience, thank you again. I love you guys and I'll see you guys soon. Do like an introduction for you. I find I get the best feedback from my guests or my audience when we just kind of roll into it so okay let me ask you a question to start most of the physicians in america are overworked they practice what you call tick and flick medicine they see patients for seven minutes a day what makes you different what is your drive to be more on the prevention end than the disease management end of medicine yeah, well, uh, that's a great question. And and Dr. Jack Cruz has a saying, he's like, when you know better, you do better. And if you have the knowledge and if you've delved deeply into what's actually causing patients' diseases and you understand particularly the lifestyle factors that are causing and, and making people sick, then you, I feel like you have an obligation to go deep into those lifestyle factors and, and advise people uh, the ones who are willing um, about changes that they can make to to reverse the disease process. Um, I think the majority of the doctors that you talk about, um, all of whom are, are or, or the vast vast majority of whom are well-meaning, um, simply don't or haven't looked into the, the these type of fundamental causes of, of their patients' diseases. So. That, that, and that's because the training hasn't offered it and they haven't, for whatever reason, had the time or, or inclination to, to really do a whole heap of private study. But um, when, when, they, when you do know, when you have uh, an understanding like this, I think it's, it's, there's no other option but to take you know, half an hour slots instead of seven minute slots to really um, take the time to, to understand and help people um, on a deep, deep, deep level so yeah I, I i see what you're talking about in in australia the tick and flick 
um, medicine is just as prevalent and and it's a it's a, a structural issue and it's a system issue and it's to do with the incentives in healthcare and um, but for the doctors who are willing to take extra time um, that that's the approach I think that's really helping people in the long run because that's the approach that will will prevent people from needing medications and and basically progressing into chronic disease and and it's also the approach that will help them come off medications if they are um, if they are prescribed a whole bunch of, of of chronic disease medications which are in effect treating the pheno the, the kind of epiphenomena or the the consequences of their lifestyle they're not um, in any way reversing the underlying disease process and commonly I say to patients um, you know they'll, they'll come in on a range of diabetic meds and I say to them look you you don't really have a met metformin deficiency in your body um, you, you don't have a, a a statin deficiency you're, you're taking these medications because they're um they're helping in a very small way um deal with the consequences of uh, what what is essentially the lifestyle that's not not suitable to your biology and once you put pose it like that um people can it helps them understand that they they have options and some people choose to continue their lifestyle and take medications for whatever reason, and that's fine. And but uh, a lot of people, when they're empowered with the information um, of dietary, um, exercise, light environment, they they are willing and able to to improve their health. And I, there's a great um, lifestyle doctor called Dr. Penny Figtree, and she's she helps reverse a lot of diabetes with. Um, low carbohydrate approach and she says to her patients you know you can have uh in the morning for breakfast you can have cereal uh and insulin or you can have an omelet and, and basically <laughs> basically it illustrates the point it's like you can you can do what you're doing and you can do what all these guidelines are telling people um and and be medicated or you can simply um change your lifestyle and then the medications are no longer necessary. I'm assuming you didn't learn any of this in med school because when I talk to traditional doctors and no disrespect to them, they think low carb, keto, ketoacidosis, you're blind, you're dead. Where did you decide to research this instead of your traditional medicine? How'd you come about yeah. this low carb? Yeah. I mean, so the low carb stuff was the beginning. And for me, it was a, a patient journey and i throughout my early early and mid 20s had um quite bad acne and i i was eating a, a, a not a, a junk food diet but i was eating grains and i was eating you know uh fruits and these types of foods because i was cycling a lot at the time so the the marketing in Australia, um, particularly around sport and activity, even from a really young age, is you know, drink this drink this malt um, sugar sugar malt uh, powder that you mix into um, milk called Milo. You know, drink that because you need that for your energy. Um, eat wheat bix, which is like a, a, a wheat based brick of um, wheat for breakfast. You know, eat wheat bix with fruit and honey in the morning. Drink um, an up and go, which is essentially uh, uh, like a tetra pack filled with um, a liquid, which is essentially an emulsion of vegetable oil with sugar and, and dairy. 
um, drink one of those before you do do exercise. So I was I was basically in an in a non conscious way uh, adhering to you know mainstream narratives about what's a healthy food um, and just having really really um, bad skin as a, as a result of that. And then the the journey of of diet and moving through that was one where I was prescribed a whole bunch of medications. And for your listeners, there's there's lots of there's a progression, just like any many diseases. We have we start with the topical creams, and then when they don't work, we get prescribed oral antibiotics um, like doxycycline, which is uh, a tetracycline antibiotic, which was which is used for a range of things that you know quite serious indications. It's used for malaria prophylaxis to prevent people getting malaria when they go overseas. It's used for atypical pneumonias it's used for you know obscure um uh marine bacterial infections you know there's there's a range of uh of quite serious uses for these antibiotics but they're being used you know long term in people who have simply just bad skin and but throughout this whole process no one was mentioning especially the dermatologist wasn't mentioning that you know there's good evidence that uh diet can influence the the quality of your your skin and the severity of acne so so i guess i guess i ended up on a medication called roaccutane which is very effective but it uh, at, at removing pimples but um it is quite uh it has quite a lot of side effects and maybe at school people would notice kids with very dry lips and kind of almost very red face um flaky and the like you can pick it you can really see who's on roaccutane and who isn't because it, it's just very very characteristic um effects and so so i was on that for three months and then stopped it because i was just feeling absolutely um awful and there was quite you know i feeling feeling down and um like my mood was off so essentially that that journey um continued because he like a couple years later when this was still a problem i tried a plant-based diet um because again this is all about narratives and the narrative was that the, a plant-based diet was healthier for the environment, healthier for the planet, you know, healthier for the animals and healthier for you. And that, that was interesting. And, um, uh, yeah, it just got worse again. And I was eating heaps of grains, legumes, bread, like wholemeal bread, again, doing everything supposedly healthy and right. Lots of fruit juice, but, uh, you know, the, the, the skin got worse and then the, you know, all kinds of other symptoms and like, uh, just getting recurrent, colds just more colds than usual um getting bloating and irritable bowel type symptoms and so so it was almost like i was going on my own journey and finding out exactly what didn't work and from the standard australian or american approach to the plant-based approach and then finally because i was in medical school at this point um i found a, a channel a youtube channel called low carb down under and it's essentially just a, it's a massive repository of lifestyle um, medicine videos. And it's a, it's amazing that the, the, the main topics are diet and they talk about low carbohydrate approach, obviously. And, and I just followed those and then progressively cut out um, grains and fruit and, and mostly, and then eventually got into a carnivore approach through uh, Paul Saladino and Sean Baker. And yeah, things got better really quickly. So that was the, the tipping point for me. And and at that point, when I was late in medical school, it became imperative for me to uh, 
I guess, practice in a way that is um, coherent with my new knowledge, especially when I learned that not only acne, but um, heart failure, high blood pressure, um, type 2 diabetes, uh, autoimmune diseases all improve when um, the processed foods removed and, and more meat is introduced. So that was that's the journey of kind of reconciling my own patient experience with my own knowledge. And again, as you as you said, Vince, none of this was being taught in in medical school. And now I'm for in my fifth year of medical practice and doing family medicine training, um, I'm actually able to to implement what I basically taught myself um, in a, in a clinical way. Um, and I'm also um, working with a, a mentor down here in Albury who's extremely experienced with this approach, and it's fantastic because. Uh, it's I'm able to see patients yeah in a half an hour slot and we're able to go deep into their diets and their lifestyle and um, yeah having having amazing results so it's it's a much more rewarding uh, approach from from what I've heard people talk about and you know the burnt out 30 year colleague and <laughs> um, so yeah it's it's really great but that's essentially my story about how how I went from standard Australian diet and, and standard Australian uh, medical, curriculum to where I am now. We have like the same backstory. Um, when I was maybe eighth grade, Accutane was huge, but I'm not sure if it was talked about in Australia, but they were worried about like suicide risk in teens when it was popular, when I was had a bunch of acne. Mm. Yeah. And, and look, the, the, uh, cause that was a co- the complication that I noticed. And at the time I looked into it and I, and I think the mainstream dermatology party line was that, um, in fact, you know, you're depressed because if you've got severe acne and if anything, the Accutane is going to make that better because, you know, your acne is going away. But, um, you know, I, I think it is, it definitely does have signal now for, um, for, you know, depressive or psychiatric, um, uh, mood, mood disorder symptoms or exacerbations. So yeah, it's, look, it's funny one because, uh, and, and, and this is a, a point that's interesting is that there is a reluctance on, from a, a mainstream point of view to admit that medications have side effects and often I'll hear patients and they've seen other, other doctors or, um, you know, they've, they've clearly had a side effect that was temporarily associated with commencing a new medication or taking uh, a, a new medical intervention and they get, they get blown off they they get say oh no no that that's they're unrelated they're they're not that wasn't the cause of your symptoms and sometimes that's correct but sometimes you know you can there's a clear temporal association of cause and effect Um, and we can go into the bradford hill criteria about causation and all this kind of thing but suffice to say there's sufficient um there's sufficient evidence in my mind that they were temporarily related but medicine is reluctant to admit that there's a, a a causal link often and I think there's a lot behind that, um, especially in the past three years. But it, re- it really, uh, my belief is that it, it stands to jeopardize the trust uh, of the, I guess, the, the whole, the, the institution or the, the, the movement as a whole. And if we're, if we're um, I guess, admitting or conceding that some medications have real um, side effects, then 
you know, then perhaps people would lose credibility or in other areas of, of medicine. But I think it's problematic for a number of, re- number of reasons, which is um, what what is supposedly safe now um, and widely recommended and endorsed isn't always the case. And, you know, you can go back through history of medicine and about drugs that got removed from from clinical practice because they discovered they were having adverse side effects. And I mean, just, just ones for, um, to think about, I mean, the first statin medication, um, the, the, uh, fluoroquinolone antibiotics, like got, got a black box warning. Um, and then ones that I always kind of talk about are the, the diethyl stilbestrol, which was a, a medication given to women from the sixties until, um, or the early 60s till the early 80s, I believe, or at least the, the 70s. And it was given for morning sickness. Sorry, it wasn't given morning. It was given for, um, uh, uh, it was given for another obstetric complication to prevent um, progression. Um, and it turned out that the daughters of the women who had the dial were at high risk of a, of a really rare vaginal cancer. And that, that's having, you know, there's evidence that the third generation is affected and, and, and is at a higher risk of, um, you know, uh, uterine abnormalities, reproductive tract abnormalities, endometriosis, and the, the males are increased risk of hypospadias and all these other kinds of reproductive problems. But the moral of the story is that that side effect was unable to show up um, until the next generation. So what was apparently safe um, wasn't um, wasn't safe, but it took a while to show. And for, for that reason, I think that it's prudent that that, that we use these things you know carefully. Um, even something like paracetamol, there's a you know there's a paracetamol in pregnancy. There's now evidence that it ha- can have an endocrine disrupting effect, and you know we're we're advised patients um, that they should avoid where possible taking paracetamol which is acetomophen in, in, for you guys in the US during pregnancy because it can have an, an effect on on the gender, um, on the reproductive development of the fetus. So all, all these things, um, all this to say, um, Vince, is that these medications and um, I guess a me- medication-based clinical approach is, it, it, there's always risks. And I, I think the most robust way or the, the safest way to practice is to help patients um, with a lifestyle, if they're willing um, to not need them, because it, it's the most intellectually humble and um, uh, approach that in the long term is is not going to be associated with unintended consequences that the profession and science simply hasn't unearthed yet. It's a crazy paradigm that you're describing, because one, it halts, if not slows down all medical progression, because you're not getting the feedback or the evidence from the actual people you're working on. And two, it reinforces this authoritative model, which is like the opposite of what you're practicing, where patients are at the mercy of their doctor. So you're like coming in at the perfect point. So everything's tying together now. Like the reason why you're practicing this way, because you have the knowledge for it, the passion, but there's also, we're almost at an inflection point where if more people don't practice like you, more patients like me will suffer. So when you're looking at this low carb video on YouTube, why did you give it a try? Why didn't you just keep slugging along and think it wasn't low plane? It was like just your genetics or something. 
Yeah, and, and that's a, a real great question. And, and it really ties into behavior change and the psychology of behavior change. Because every individual, and I see this in, in my clinical practice as well, everyone has a different threshold for um, changing their lifestyle um, to, to, to change what, where they're at or what, what they're experiencing. And, and for me, uh, you know, my symptoms were bad enough that I was, I mean, I, I like to eat, sure, at the time I like to eat fruit and I like to eat avocado on toast, but um, I didn't like to eat it so much that I was willing to walk around, you know, in my late 20s with, with bad acne and in a constant state of gastrointestinal stress. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so for me, it was, it, there, there's like the, the balance beam of, of and, and, and when I think the, the discomfort rises high enough that, that we're willing to try what we're willing to try. Um, I guess it becomes more practical and more, more ready to change. And yeah, so, so I think the, the factors that influence that is just someone's curiosity, their knowledge, um, and yeah, their personality type. And look, you'll see people who, you know, have, um, you know, severe end stage, you know, lung cancer, and they're still unwilling to give up the, the fries and the, the cigarettes um, and that, that, that's their decision and that's fine. They, they're able to make that. But yeah, uh, I think the, the, the point is that when people get uncomfortable enough in, in any part of their life, that is the stimulus to make um, a, a behavior change. So for me, it, it was, yeah, my, in my symptoms. And, and yeah, uh, the, the other point about that is the more normalized something is, the easier it is that more willing people are to change. So, you know, back, you know, five years ago or four and a half when I, I did a carnivore type diet, it was very, very, what no one was really doing it or very few, much fewer people were doing it. But as a, as something like low carb or um, carnivore or even something what I'm doing now wearing blue light blocking glasses becomes more common, then people are more inclined to make a change because they're seen as um, acting less outside the main group and and we're tribal creatures and and the behavioral psychology of being a, a tribal creature means that people often don't want to do the thing that's um maybe works or is best for them if it's perceived as being abnormal or weird so um yeah it's a it's a complex um constellation of factors i think vince but it's essentially boils down to psychology and, and what people are willing and, and not willing to do to kind of feel better so when you saw the low carb thing, did you think it would work or were you thinking like, I got to try something new and maybe this will work? Did you believe like the testimonials of other people? Yeah, I, I think so. I'd, I'd, read, I'd read enough that, um, that, that I thought that it was, it was worth a try. And then quickly you, you find benefit yourself. And that, that comes into this whole idea of you know, N equals one, which is an experiment with a single patient. And often I say to patients that, you know, you are the most important N equals one experiment because there, there might be all these guidelines and these trials that have um, a finding, but unless you're completely represented in that trial finding popular uh, in that trial population, the finding might not be relevant to you. So, so the, the patient's lived experience and, and how they feel when they, um, make a change is is critical and i really encourage people to tune into that feeling um because that is again like the most the most relevant thing for them and if we pair that with 
you know evidence but really use their their own um their own response to to guide us then i think that's that's a very very robust and personalized way to do it you mentioned on dr k the carnivore conversation about evidence-based medicine and you talked about like the fine line between and i couldn't agree more that although you have to follow the evidence like you have to follow how you feel and i'm assuming as you started the carnivore diet or low carb you felt better so you had less of a need to look at the research because you were the evidence yes and that's that's 100 um how i felt uh it was incredible and i still remember like going through a couple of week period of of what i'd probably describe as um almost like hypomania it was incredibly um it was almost uh yeah i didn't need to sleep for i was sleeping for like you know four hours or so and during this in, i I, th I believe it was a, a ketogenic um like the first time your body's in deep ketosis uh, it was incredible amount of energy and peace and um, joy. <laughs> it was almost, it was like a semi-spiritual moment, but uh, it, it was fantastic. But what, what I, what I think and what related to what you said is that, and um, we can, we can outsource like our life decisions based on, you know, all these, these guidelines and these um, you know, aggregated study findings. But if you follow them and you still feel crap and you develop type two diabetes and, and you've got a fatty liver and what, well, I mean, clearly something's not working. So you can either continue to um, go along with your current approach um, or you can try something else. And the trying something else is a process of checking in with how your body feels. And often when we, we change our lifestyle in, in, in terms of listening to that internal voice and that internal feeling um, we, we arrive at approach that is more optimally healthy for our, uh, ourselves uh, and, and that's been my experience with patients as well now when you present this to patients low carb or keto do they are they receptive are these people coming to you because this is how you practice or is it like a cold call like hey i'm dr max i'm calling you about a low carb diet <laughs> Yeah, no, it's um, I'm, at this point, I'm getting lots of lots of patients who've um, been referred by word of mouth or um, who've heard about me or listened to podcasts, or just interested, they've read read the blurb on the on the medical center website, and they're interested in taking a holistic or a more lifestyle based approach. So they're often, you know, already quite interested. And again, talking about behavior change is that it's, it's very difficult to convert someone, um, you know, if they're cold, then someone who's already warm or, or in terms of co contemplative. And, um, but look, some patients will be, um, some patients will be simply n not even thinking about it. And, you know, I'll gently, gently raise the point and, you know, you offer it, say, well, are you interested in um, perhaps making some changes? And a couple, couple of people have been very receptive from just, again, as you'd say, uh, more more of a cold approach but um yeah pe people have been very the ones that are stick to it have great results and so yeah i i just like to offer i don't push anything and, I, and that's a point i made in previous podcasts which is i'm not here to tell you what to do um and i don't think that works when when we're talking about um, 
lifestyle or even medicine. If, if a doctor pushes a, a medication onto a patient, um, I, I don't know what the data is, but I, I would suggest that they're less likely to take it. But I simply say, look, I'm, I'm here to offer you um, options and I'm here to support you no matter what option you choose. But um, I think it's the most important thing that we give our patients options and respect their decision. But to, to direct them down uh, a pharmaceutical-based approach after not having offered like effective lifestyle treatment, um, I think that's that's when we when as a collectively as a profession we, we're doing our patients a disservice because you're not really giving them um, what the evidence tells us works for reversing diabetes for improving health. Um, so yeah, that that's how I think about that. I like what you said on a previous podcast that you tell your patients it's not your fault, your current health status, but it is currently your problem. And I think that's a good way to think about it because, like, listen, no one's at fault. You're doing your best, but, like, this is what it is. You don't have a metformin deficiency. You have excess carbohydrates. So I, I have a lot of carnivore-ist on my podcast, it seems like. Do you eat any carbs? Because the question that comes up a lot is metabolic flexibility. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so I am I'm not dogmatically carnivore, and I change. Uh, you know, I'm probably ninety percent um, animal based, and and the reason for that is that, that simply seems to work the best with my physiology and my lifestyle, um, and, and my health goals at the moment. And but I'm I'm not opposed to including. Uh, some plant foods at certain times and i guess um the more i i think about it or the more i learn the more i'm i'm inclined to opt towards just seasonality and you know i had a, a long conversation with dr jack cruz and look his his perspective which is very fascinating is that the the food is simply um is simply what he calls a photosynthetic barcode that that we're basically, it's a message that you're giving your body um, of the kind of photosynthetic environment or, uh, of wherever the foods come from. So if you're eating food out of season, um, like if you're eating a banana in the middle of Michigan winter, then you are, you are sending a very incongruent and confusing message to your body because the, the food message um, and the photosynthesis that used to grow that banana is incongruent with the latitude and the solar um, uh, information that you're receiving through your skin and your eyes. So what, what that means is that, um, you know, eating things that exist at that, at that latitude at that time of year, and obviously animals, especially ruminant animals, they can exist, they're existing at high latitudes, but they're existing at low latitudes in the winter. So that's why, you know, the carnivore, a high fat, high protein diet, seems to work so well um, universally is because um, no matter what uh, framework of thought you use, it's, it's an appropriate human food. I, I agree that metabolic flexibility um, is desirable. And I kind of, um, I guess I had, a, had, had this bit of a debate with Dr. Kills when I was on his podcast, which was, uh, I believe it is um, appropriate to occasionally spike your, your, your insulin level. Um, I don't think it's necessarily uh, appropriate to, unless you're treating a, a quite a severe um, medical condition like refractory epilepsy or, um, you know, Alzheimer's disease or, you know, you, you're 
trying to keep a cancer diagnosis in remission for for people who are just health optimizing um i i think it's reasonable to spike your insulin now and then and that should co- coordinate or co- um co- should o- coincide with seasonality so when there would be um some kinds of like vegetables or like preferably fermented or uh, you know, fruits that would grow at that latitude yeah sure um and that that does develop metabolic flexibility and the ability of the body to use um you know either fuel type to to fuel itself the um and the like just on a really practical point of view i've noticed once people go through that phase of maybe a phase of ketogenic eating to they basically build out the machinery the molecular machinery to use fat as fuel and from that point onwards they're able to access the benefits of both metabolic types, meaning that even if they go to eating, you know, still 100, 200 grams of carbs a day, if they don't eat, they'll be able to fast much easier and more comfortable. They won't just get get hangry and um, uncomfortable like someone does when they're riding that that insulin roller coaster on a standard Australian or a standard American diet. So, so all that to say, um. Uh, I think there's there's definitely a role, and I don't believe that everyone should be 100% carnivore all the time. But if you have a medical condition that justified or necessitated the use of that approach, then um, you know that's a different story. Did you start zero carb? So my experience with this, I started zero carb, and I had that hypermania thing that you talked about, where I was like, I'm going to live to 200, I can jump over a building, <laughs> and then like three months in, I started having like trouble sleeping. And I felt mm. like my adrenaline or sympathetic nervous system was higher. And I mm. now I'm like cyclic keto where two weeks, zero carb, one day, not a cheat day, but like a carb refuel. And that seems to be good for my system. Is that what you experienced? Did you go low carb too long? That's, that's an interesting question. And I, I did, I did feel like, um, after about maybe four or five months, yeah, I was. Get, I had a couple of symptoms. I, I I wasn't having um difficulty sleeping, but perhaps, um, maybe concentr- concentration was was uh was lagging, and you know, it's difficult because when you talk about this, um, you especially in dietary approaches like carnivore or vegan, you know, you 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 didn't try hard enough, or you weren't carnivore enough, or you did it wrong, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, uh, but essentially I, and, you know, you could argue that maybe I was not having insufficient electrolytes, but look, I would say that there were enough symptoms to, I guess, try something else. And look, Paul Saladino talked about that and he documented it and he was able to document, you know, uh, raises in his sex hormone blinding globulin and, and, and slight decreases in his thyroid function when he was, um, completely carnivore and you know i had a, a chat to anthony chafee on my podcast and you know he he thinks that that isn't um as much of a problem and uh the the there is documented cases of of folate deficiency on pure carnivore and um i haven't had one myself but my colleague my mentor um recently had a, a case of a lady who was just feeling horrible on on uh on a pure carnivore and she was doing it she wasn't doing a a um she was doing a proper job of it and she had a, a, a low folate. So look, it is possible. And for that reason, uh, I really encourage people to, to not ignore their, how they feel. Like don't, don't stick to something because you know, you're thinking you've got to be a Puritan about it. 
And the fact that Vince, you learnt for yourself that if you do two weeks of of uh, basically meat based, and then you you basically you know spike your insulin and you do that that kind of carb refeed, that is optimizes your health. I think that's the most important thing, and I I would encourage people to ignore the dogmatism or the you know the doctrine. Find what works for you, and don't ignore those innate feelings if you're not feeling ideal and just keep experimenting that's so true and it's funny you brought up when people say like well you're not doing it hard you're not trying hard enough you're not carnivore enough or else it would work better for you in america there's like a group of people that want to be communists and a group of people that want to be capitalists and they always say like well we didn't do communists the right way that's why it's not working same line of thinking so the next thing i got to get into because this is a video podcast too you're in a bunch of red light right now and you talked a lot about a light diet, which I never heard it phrased that way before. Why do you have a red light at 5.30 in the morning? Or it's probably 6.15 now. Yeah, so it's something that I talk about now, which is um, I, I progress to, to only talking about diet in terms of optimal health, and it really included light. And the, the reason why I've, I've got this red light is because um, I'm trying to mitigate the effect of um, the artificial light being emitted from my, my computer as I talk to you. And uh, essentially, or, or to, to boil it down, is is that we as humans and, and all, all mammals and all creatures have a 24-hour uh, circadian rhythm. And for your listeners, what that means is that uh, our biology and the, the processes and the hormonal processes and in our body um, fluctuate based on a 24-hour cycle and it's based on adequate light and adequate dark so so the 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 processes of coordinating these um our body's physiology relies on the light signals from the sun um, and the absence of light in the dark to to allow us to thrive the the problem or, or the reality is that for the for, you know hundreds of millions of years, we evolved with the sun as the sole source of light in our life, and and we would wake up by with the sun. We would receive certain wavelengths of light in the morning, and they would condition or or trigger pro- processes like um, uh, releases of certain hormones, um, uh, like you know cortisol melatonin um, all these all these hormones and then throughout the day the the frequency of light would change um, and then this process um, would allow us to to I guess exist in an optimal way that's what our biology is adapted to and then with uh, with the development of the electric grid and um, and the invention of artificial light we were able to replicate the sun but it's not it wasn't a true replication it was almost like a an abomination of the sun because it's not doesn't have the same light spectra um the same frequencies and particularly it lacks all the non-visible light so it doesn't have ultraviolet it doesn't have um, infrared and near infrared and these non-visible light um frequencies also perceived by both our eyes and our skin in terms of um optimizing um, our biology so when and now if we fast forward all the way to 2023 not not only have we invented 
artificial light, which is, is uh, I guess I, I call it junk, junk light, but we've also got frequencies of non-visible light that also impact our biology. Um, and and the, that's what's called non-native uh, EMF or electromagnetic fields. And what, what it means by non-native is that the sun, sunlight, visible light, and other forms of non-visible light from the sun are, are native because that's what we evolved with. That's that's what we get exposed to on terrestrially when we stand on on the on planet Earth, and it's filtered. It's filtered from the the sun through the the Earth's magnetosphere, and it's um it's it's appropriate to to what to our biology. But when we invented uh, sources of telecommunication. We, I get, we made these non-native sources of, of EMF that are biologically relevant and biologically active um, and influence the way our body operates, but um, that we're not, simply not adapted to. So if you, what, what the point about the red, the red glasses is, these are blocking, the, the blue, blue light blocking glasses essentially block the blue wavelengths that are being emitted from LED lights, from computer screens, from you know, down lights, or all, all these uh, fluorescent bulbs, all these lights that are giving us a profoundly um, uh, inconsistent light exposure, the, the glasses help to mitigate that by essentially blocking those wavelengths. So we can only perceive um, the kind of red frequencies, which and, and the red light, which is has a less, less of an impact on on our biology. And, um, you know, it's an extremely kind of deep field, but what what we're doing is trying to mitigate the effect of on our mitochondria or but basically on our ability to secrete melatonin and which is a very important hormone for uh for sleep and recovery and antioxidant but also um for um our mitochondria which are the little tiny organelles inside every cell that make energy and they they perceive light and they are very much disrupted by um an artificial light environment and by by circadian disruption so the the reason why i think this is this is important is that the overlying or kind of i guess the grander dictate of health which is i'm learning more about is the presence or absence of proper circadian regulation which is influenced by a light environment and influenced by our frequency environment or our you know wi-fi non-av emfs like wi-fi Bluetooth, um, 5G, all these kinds of things. So once that circadian rhythm is regulated, the, the, the focus of the diet stuff and carnivore and low carb, which is metabolic health, that slots in and that becomes much, 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 much easier. Um, and, I mean, we can talk about the, the, the physiological pathways, but that's why I really see that guys like Dr. Jack Cruz and um, the quantum health and quantum biology people their model of health is more explainable in my mind um, than a purely dietary based paradigm. So, so you can fit the insulin resistance and the metabolic health inside a paradigm of, of, of quantum biology and circadian biology. Um, and if you do both, which is, you know, avoiding ultra processed food in an optimal food diet and you avoid artificial light and you try and align yourself to the circadian day and the, um, appropriate light signals with a light diet. When you do both, that's the most powerful in terms of, in my experience, for getting people um, thriving and living in an optimal life. Um, so that it's not only light. It's not. Well, Jack Cruz would argue it's only light, but um, <laughs> I, I like to emphasize both. It kind of sounds like 
when they made high fructose corn syrup and they took the fructose out of the fruit, it like kills your liver. When they take this junk light like you're talking about, it kills your body basically. So my audience is like jumping out of their seats. How do we have a better light diet? Can you walk me through your light nutrition throughout the day? Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree with that. I, I tell tell people that, you know, the, the fluorobulb and the cubicle that they're working in, that that's the meth of light. Um, <laughs> it it is. It, yeah, it's the meth version <laughs> of light. <laughs> so, yeah, you're, you're being exposed to, to meth, um, the meth version of light. And, look, if you think about people go, who go to work under fluorescent lights, you know, they're drinking coffees the whole time. Um, maybe it's helping them do work that they're not passionate about. Um, you know, they're just – it's helping them being a cog in the machine, so to speak. But what what I recommend is that, um, and I've and I've done a couple of interviews on this, is that we need to avoid or mitigate as much as possible sources of um, artificial light. So what that looks like is that I'm I'm up before dawn, so I've got my my blue blue light blockers on, and I'm using um, mostly mostly red light. When the sun goes up, comes up, I will get outside and I will take these glasses off. And if I were to wear prescription lenses, I would 100% take those off. And I would get the, the, the morning light into my eye. And that sets a whole bunch of processes. It cues melatonin to be released by my pineal gland, um, you know, an hour or two after sunset. So it, the morning light environment will set how well you sleep and your recovery process for the, the following night. So I'll get outside and, and particularly red wavelengths, um, which is the, the visible light that you get in that morning glow. That is, that's highly, highly important. And then throughout the day, what's called, um, I'll try and check in with the sun. And it's difficult when you're working full time, but these are like, you know, Dr. Montgomery, Jay Montgomery calls this quantum sampling, where you're basically checking in with the sun and you're syncing up your circadian rhythm with the information that the sun's providing. So it's almost like you're constantly downloading um, the, your information from the sun about where you should be physiologically. And you, we have what one of the reasons we perceive these is because our, our eyes contain photoreceptors, which are non-image forming, which means that, you know, you, your listeners might've heard of rods and cones, which are photoreceptors in the retina that allow us to see shapes. And that's how I can see your, your face fins now, but, in a proportion of those photoreceptors don't don't form images, but they just simply um, detect light frequencies, um, and they have a, a a photoreceptor in them uh, called melanopsin, which is a basically a blue light detector. And and when melanopsin is being fired appropriately, it would be during the middle of the day because that is when there's a predominant relative predominance of blue wavelengths from from naturally so th those these non-visible the visible photoreceptors project all the way to our hypothalamus um, and an area called the suprachiasmatic nucleus and which is a clock timing mechanism and it dictates the it's the clock mechanism for our whole body and from the from that area the hypothalamus that is where the the message gets sent to our endocrine organs to the pituitary gland um, which coordinates the release of things like um, thyroid stimulating hormone, um, all the gonadal stimulating hormones for our sex hormone um, secretion, um, uh, ACTH, which is related in our body's ability to secrete cortisol. So when we're sending an inappropriate message of by exposure to blue light in inappropriate times, say, you know, at 6 a.m. in the morning, 
then or you know 11 p.m at night we're really just throwing a spanner in the works of our of our whole biology so checking in through through, through seeing some morning sun checking in with the sun throughout the day getting sun getting sun on the skin and the reason for that is there's melanopsin that non-visible visible light receptor um, photoreceptor in our skin and our blood vessels so to think that um you can just kind of look at look at get that information in your eyes is it, it's not necessarily um all that you need to do and um, perhaps if you're exposed to artificial light on your skin that could be that could be problematic and that could be driving disease but and um, to, to mitigate that artificial light exposure wear the blue blockers and i wear my yellow ones when i'm during the day and whenever night falls or it's complete absence of sun i wear my my uh, orange or red ones and then when night falls um yeah again being very diligent trying to cultivate a low light environment because it's not only the wavelengths but it's also the intensity of light and the position um obviously we evolved with overhead light and when overhead light exists we are you know supposed to be active so if you do all these things um you will but basically be doing your best to exist in a modern world that is profoundly um uh, profoundly different to to the light environment that we evolved in there's such a mismatch between what we evolved in and now so just so i can recap this you wear orange glasses in the morning yellow glasses during the day when you look at artificial light or all day so i wear the the yellow blue blockers when i'm inside uh behind a window exposed to my computer screens um, and that's during the day during the day yeah and yeah, then back to one. the orange at nighttime yeah back, back to red uh at nighttime and i try and get outside you know in my lunch break i'll sit outside take all the glasses off um you know absorb all that sun uh so whenever i'm outside i'm obviously not not wearing them because i'm the blue light from the sun is always balanced. It's balanced with red. It's balanced with non-visible light. So when you're outside, that's why I advise not wearing um, sunglasses either. Um, and that's an, that's another whole topic. But fascinatingly, uh, when we wear sunglasses, um, we're sending an incongruent message between um, the retina and the skin. And one of the processes of, of adapting to sun exposure, which is darkening your skin, um, involves the secretion of of um, hormone um, alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone. That message is 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 regulated by uh, information from the eye. So when you wear sunglasses and get sun exposure, you get the paradoxical um, increased propensity to sunburn because your body you're sending a confusing message about how um, how the body should be responding to this artificial light source to 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 sunlight. Um, so that's an that's an interesting point um, that people um, don't appreciate. You just like connected two puzzle pieces in my life because I swear I've always thought like if I don't wear sunglasses for some reason my skin doesn't burn, but if I have sunglasses on, I'm more prone to getting sunburn. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the 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 how to not get sunburned one hundred one starter pack in my mind is uh, stop eating uh, industrial seed oils, which are really rich in linoleic acid and um, they have all these kind of toxic breakdown products that increase your propensity to burning and don't wear sunglasses and get morning sun, get morning sun on your skin and get morning sun in your eyes because that act of uh, will precondition your skin for the ultraviolet rays that come later in the day. So it's about safe and um, appropriate graded sun exposure um, and building what's called a solar callus that is key to 
um, existing healthily and not, not, you know, like, like I said to my patients, you don't want to show up, you know, with a really fair skin type, having never been to the sun into the middle midday Australian sun, you know, you look like a tourist, um, a UK tourist in the middle of Bondi beach, you look like a prawn, <laughs> look yeah. like a shrimp. Um, that's, that's exactly not how to do it. Um, so it's about doing it properly and gradient in a gradiently exposed way um, and building that solar callus. Man, I could talk to you for like 10 hours. Um, we're getting up on the hour mark and I really want to respect your time. I always end with two questions. The first one is what is one takeaway you'd want the audience to take from this hour interview? I would say mind your food diet and mind your light diet. Get rid of junk food, get rid of ultra processed food and get rid of junk light and, and artificial light um, and, and mitigate those two in, in the way that best fits your lifestyle. I That's like perfect advice. And lastly, my second goal of the podcast is to present you in the best light, no pun intended, uh, as possible. So where can people find you? How can they listen to your amazing podcast? And how can they, if you're in Australia, how can they become one of your patients? Yeah, so um, I can be found at uh, on Twitter, um, MGulhaneMD, on Instagram, Dr. Max, Dr. underscore Max uh, underscore Gulhane. And my podcast is called The Regenerative Health Podcast. And that's on all the streaming services. It's also on YouTube. So if you just type it in, um, you can you can see my podcast. I, I talk to lifestyle doctors. I talk to um, currently exploring this light topic uh, at the moment, um, and also regenerative farmers. And that's not something we talked about, Vince. But essentially, food sourcing and 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 getting closer to where the food is come comes from, I think, is key. Is going to be key to op- optimal health. But um, yeah, those those are where you can find me. If you're in in Australia, then. Uh, if you go into my link tree, which is on my bio and my Twitter and uh, Instagram, you can click on my consulting link. And I'm, I'm consulting uh, in Albury, New South Wales, Australia, and obviously see people in person or uh, can also do telehealth. And so remotely from any, anywhere in Australia. But yeah, that that's me. Um, so thank you. Thanks, Vince. I really appreciate um, the opportunity to talk to your audience and uh, it was a fantastic conversation and, and very interesting. So yeah, thanks for you. thanks for uh, having me on. Oh, my pleasure. I think medicine is at an inflection point right now, and you're the exact person that can help move us towards a more personalized medicine. So I truly appreciate the work you're doing, Max. Amazing. Thank you, Vince. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Cheers. Cheers.